G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Good morning, good day, good afternoon um, to everybody. Um, We'd like to begin, um, before we introduce ourselves further, with a bit of acknowledgement of uh, Māori customs, Māori being the Indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, where Claire and I are based. Um, And we'd like to observe some some common tikanga or protocols by opening and later on closing this talk with a karakia. Just to let you know, karakia are... Um, they're like a blessing. They're not. They're generally not. Se- they're generally secular, and they're intended to invoke um, spiritual guidance and protection to a gathering, and to acknowledge its purpose and to pave a way forward for what is to come in the hope of achieving a more favourable outcome. So, I'd like to. Kihora te marino ke fakapapa ponamu te moana. Hei hurahi ma tato i te ranginei. Aroha atu, aroha mai. Tato i a tato katoa, huie taiki. Thanks, Emma. So just to, to further acknowledge our positions in respect to any claims of knowledge that we make today, um, we'd like to offer some insights into who we are and where we come from, um, particularly salient when claims are being made in relation to topics as nebulous as health promotion. Um, We're both occupational therapists and currently working as academics here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We are Tauiwi, which means we are people who trace our ancestry to Britain and are here through the grace of Te Tiriti or Waitangi, which is an agreement that was made in 1840 between Māori and the Crown. More importantly, while Claire grew up in Aotearoa and I grew up in the UK, we were both immersed in weird worldviews. That is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So this worldview accepts that normal that people are self-defining individuals, that rational thought and data hold more truth than feelings, intuitions, or the teachings of ancestors. That science and the market economy will secure the future of people on the planet, and the separation of people from the environment and our bodies from our minds. Well, that's the polite way of putting it. So as products of feminism and neoliberalism, we might also be described as indoctrinated into ideals of self-reliance and personal responsibility. Um, Each of us are on our own journey seeking to um, become more sensitized to the multiple harms that these weird perspectives continue to impose on Māori and other Indigenous peoples, spiritually, culturally and materially. And we're seeking in our outlook, in our scholarship, in our teaching, in our personal practices to to cause that to change. Um, It's challenging, it's unending work, but it's never so hard as it is for Māori who live with the impact of colonisation every day. Now I'm just realising that I can't actually see when you flip the slides over, Emma, so I'm just going to faff around a little bit and change things where uh, where things are on my screen. Cool. 
The other acknowledgement that we need to make is to Anne Wilcock, because what we're talking about today really builds on her work. Um, Dr Anne Wilcock, who was also British but situated in Australia, asserted that occupation can positively or negatively influence health and well-being. Occupational scientists from weird societies have taken up that perspective. So again, weird meaning Western educated, industrialised, rich and democratic countries. But what evidence have we actually generated as occupational therapists and occupational scientists uh, to verify that relationship between occupation and health? So have we moved past um, just making assertions about that? Uh, another note just to start us off so that we are understanding each other is to look at our concept of health and how we're positioning that. So health as encompassing well-being, but also illness and disease and ageing, um, that we are identifying reciprocal relationships between occupation and health, but also in the other direction between health and occupation. So what we do influencing our state of well-being, but also our state of well-being then um, obviously influencing our capacity to engage in occupation. Um, but another note that we're thinking about health not just at an individual level. Uh, so, <coughs> excuse me, when, when we're thinking about individuals, we'd be thinking terms like doing, being, becoming, belonging. Um, but at a collective health um, level, we'd be thinking more about the lifestyles that people lead, how safe they are in their environments, um, cultural practices and traditions that shape the things that we do each day, and whether whether those practices are health-giving for us as populations of people. Um, and also within that concept of health, acknowledging that health is not distributed equally. Um, so richer people have, on the whole, better health, Poorer people suffer less, um, less well-being. Uh, and so the concept of health for us also implicitly bringing in ideas about occupational justice. So the approach that we have taken to the work that we'll be talking about today is to look at that connection between occupation and health and to notice that it's really made explicit of how, do, you know, what's actually happening in that connection. So our aim was to make the connection more visible, drawing on Anne Wilcox's work. So we distilled six propositions um, that explain that relationship between health and occupation. And then we set about examining whether those propositions are actually supported by empirical evidence. And just to kind of think about, well, so what? You know, what's the point of doing that? Um, for us, it's not as educators, but also as research, it's it's not enough to just assert that what we do affects your health. To really design effective health promotion interventions, I think that we need to be able to explain what's harming health. Uh, we need to be able to identify mechanisms by which health can be enhanced. Um, and that we need to be able to respond to uh, calls to support that claim with empirical evidence. Over to you, Emma. Yeah, thank you. 
So just to explain a little bit about how we went about this, we had a look at qualitative and quantitative research that was published in the Journal of Occupational Science over a 20-year period. And just to acknowledge that our process wasn't necessarily to conduct a systematic review, but to find examples that would support each of the propositions that we're putting forward. And from those examples that we found, we would cherry pick specific ones that we'll share today that relate to each of those propositions. Just acknowledging and reiterating empirical evidence is generally considered that which is testable, observable or measurable in some way. So whether it was presented as participant interviews or outcomes from functional assessments, those were the sort that we were considering um, for examples here. Throughout this process, we sought to expose the, those weird linkages that occupational scientists have made between occupation and health by imagining the propositions that may underpin a few of the indigenous contributions to the occupational science literature. And we use that term imagining because, of course, it's not our place to determine how indigenous people perceive an occupation health relationship. Uh, and just to acknowledge the question that popped up there, we were looking at the literature over the last 20 years or so, so um, you will see that we have simply cherry-picked some examples, but we'll talk to that a little later. So we've identified six propositions. Um, the first proposition here is experiencing meaningful occupations can promote health or in ill health in any context. And we've got two examples here that we think illustrate this proposition. In the first example from Bigan et al. in 2017, low-income families were interviewed about their occupation of food provisioning in the context of poverty. So what, we, what they found was that providing food for their children was perceived as a highly meaningful component of parenting um, and that findings extracted many positives about participating in food provisioning despite their extremely challenging circumstances. So one of those challenges was the common misperception that they, these parents were, were lazy or uneducated and irresponsible. However, these findings showed that the parents displayed really shrewd abilities to plan and strategize to use planning and strategies and skills to manage transport and financial limitations alongside many other competing priorities as well. So this experience of shopping on a really strict budget empowered the participants to position themselves positively as frugal, as knowledgeable and skilled consumers and good parents. So they had this positive self-perception that contributed to their well-being. In the second example by Guptil in 2012, they conducted phenomenological interviews with music professionals um, where their health condition was caused or exacerbated by playing their musical instrument. So participants reported decreased awareness of time and of their bodies when they were in the flow of playing. Um, however, the flow was also detrimental to their playing related injury. And it was this juxtaposition that illustrates the complex relationship between the health promoting aspects of an occupation, in their case, employment, social connection and pleasure, and the health deteriorating aspects, such as aggravation of an injury or a condition. 
So the context of participation in each of these two studies differs markedly. One's a place of poverty and discrimination, the other a place of employment and pleasure. But both of the studies support and extend this first proposition, showing that even unpleasant occupations in trying circumstances can benefit health um, via their positive meanings, and that a meaningful occupation can simultaneously promote and harm health. The second proposition is the opposite of the first in a sense. So our second proposition reads, without meaningful occupations, populations in prisons, refugee camps, aged care homes, shelters, for example, can experience occupational deprivation and human rights violation. So here we're picking up those, the negative occupational justice um, issues that we would implicitly identify as harming people's health. So our two exemplars to illustrate this, um, the first is a study by Krishna Gera et al. in 2013, uh, involved some older South Asian adults who had immigrated to the United States, and they moved largely into the suburbs to live with their adult children um, and their grandchildren. And, and the roles that they kind of anticipated and their families anticipated that they would take up really circled around looking after the grandchildren. The findings were that the timing and parameters of their occupations really depended on other people's availability. So most of them didn't drive um, and didn't have a vehicle. They were dependent on public transport. There were long distances between themselves and any community facilities or, you know, other older South Asian um, people that they had, you know, come to know so they couldn't get out to see the people that they were um, meeting in their within their social lives. So those factors together really set up a situation of occupational deprivation for those older adults. The second example, very different, by Mikhail Roy et al. in 2012, um, was based within um, a refugee camp for internally displaced people in northern Uganda. So this was at a time of civil war. The findings were that there were profound restrictions on the occupations that people could engage in and on a day-to-day -day basis due to the lack of resources. Um, we, we don't have images of refugee camps as being well-resourced. Um, and then the background also of violence that was occurring within the camp, but also if people ventured out from that. There were really different effects on women, men and children, but as a whole, that situation was threatening the, um, the skills and knowledge and daily activities that had been the cornerstone of the agricultural lifestyle to the extent that it seemed that those skills would be lost and, and the social fabric would be lost so that they could never go back to the situation that they had come from. Um, even if, you know, at, at end of war, if, if it had physically been possible to go back to their farms. So both of those studies support the, the proposition that in contexts in which access to sufficient meaningful occupations is restricted, that occupational deprivations and human rights violations threaten health and well-being. I'll just talk a little bit about the third proposition we put forward, engaging in a diverse, 
balanced array of occupations can promote individual development and health where resources, policies and personnel exist. And we'd just like to draw your attention to two important elements in that proposition, that of diversity and balance and the complex relationship between these. Um, often those are concepts that are separated out, but we've chosen to combine them here. So in our first example by Hofbrand and colleagues in 2018, um, focus groups and interviews were conducted with um, people over the age of 65 and who were working in Sweden. And they found that participants actually changed their occupational patterns to achieve what they described as a more harmonious mix of occupations. And what determined the right balance and diversity in the occupations they participated in was both within their work environment and beyond the work environment. And it was based on things like their personal abilities, their values, their experiences of participation in the past, and organisational factors such as whether they had supportive managers or having freedom to influence the work tasks that they were participating in um, and what their work hours were as well. In the second example by Coombe, Hocking and Sutton in 2012, um, they explored family routines and that was in the context of having an adolescent with a mental illness and how those routines could facilitate occupational balance and the relationship between that and health. So for parents um, and the children who were interviewed, they perceived their occupational routines as facilitating occupational balance and protecting the well-being of the young person and of the family as a whole, and of supporting them to express their identity as well. They observed that when there was deviations from these routines, this was a signal for a loss of balance and therefore potential decline in well-being. And so the need for routines to be upheld or adapted, particularly in the time of illness, was really acknowledged. So the socio-political context of both of these studies impacted on the participants' participation. So those working beyond what is considered retirement age and families with a member experiencing a mental illness. And what that hints at is this broader factors that influence diversity and balance of occupations beyond just what the individual is capable of, um, but also what does the world make accessible to them um, and what is not always equitably available. So both of these studies support the proposition that a, a balanced array of occupations do support health. And in addition, they provide evidence that the balance is dynamic, so it's ever-changing, and that there is where circumstances allow, people act to enhance their occupational balance. Um, and also that acknowledgement that the erosion of routines can signal that deterioration in well-being. Again, our fourth proposition is the opposite of the one that Emma has just described. So the fourth proposition that populations without access to diverse, balanced array of occupations due to poverty, discrimination, violence, colonisation, natural example, natural disasters and so on, can experience occupational injustices. Um, and again, we're reading occupational injustices as implicitly encompassing an imbalance of occupations, occupational marginalisation, occupational alienation. So you'll hear a lot of Anne Wilcox terminology coming up there. 
I gained two examples to illustrate that, and we've deliberately chosen very contrasting examples. So the first, McAdam et al. in 2019, this was a study of community care workers in a rural, very poor um, neighbourhood in the Limpopo province in South Africa. And what the researchers found was that the necessary occupations that the women in the village needed to perform, so collecting water um, and collecting fuel wood on a daily basis, because though the distances that the women needed to travel to actually get sufficient water for their family for the day and enough fuel to cook the food, those occupations took so many hours that they effectively limited the, the other occupational choices that the women had and resulted in a, a very tangible occupational imbalance and occupational deprivation. The second example, closer to home for most of those in the audience, involved two Irish men uh, who were living in a community residential facility but wanting to move into independent living. The findings in that case were that the residents experienced very, very few opportunities for purposeful occupations and a lack of productive roles. The institutional rules and practices contributed to limited occupational choice and autonomy, exposing the need for redistribution of power between the staff and the residents. So, and, and I guess that there's plenty of evidence um, along those lines when you go looking particularly in the aged care um, literature. So again, those studies are supporting our proposition um, across very different populations in this case, one with an excess of gruelling basic tasks and the other with virtually no daily responsibilities. So each ends of that continuum really providing evidence of the profound ill health effects of circumstances that deny people a balanced array of occupations. So in our last two propositions, our, our focus is shifting a little bit more away from the individual to the group, to the communities or to populations and to their collective patterns of occupation. So our first example for um, Proposition 5, which is intergenerational and societal patterns of occupation, for example, women entering the workforce, can impact individual societal and environmental health and ill health. And so our first example is the one by Ramagondo in 2012, where she interviewed members of an intergenerational household uh, about play. And one of the findings highlighted how the introduction of a television in more recent years has, has served its purpose in relation to play in terms of providing uh, a stimulus in terms of the content of play, and also that play was typically structured around the um, and routines in the household were determined by the TV schedule and what was on. So the constant presence of the TV um, in the family's living space almost displaced the childhood games of the first and second generation to the extent that sometimes grandparents didn't recognise what the children were doing as being play. Um, so while the study does raise concerns around increased levels of sedentary occupations being participated in by children in response to this kind of societal change and the impact of that on health, what it also signposts is that potential fracturing of 
intergenerational patterns of occupation due to the introduction of new technologies in this example um, across all levels of society and essentially the unknown impact of that on health. In the second example, Talk and colleagues in 2013 conducted focus groups with Somali women about their experiences um, cooking meals following their migration to Sweden. Um, they found that the, the when, the how, the what, the preparation of these um, and the social aspects of this meal preparation changed in response to things like their children being in, inducted into the Swedish food preferences or in response to them moving into paid employment outside of the home. And these things disrupted the food traditions between the generations and impacted on the women's sense of identity. So in these examples, the health impact of intergenerational and societal patterns of occupation is made evident when they're interrupted. And the intergenerational transmission of traditional childhood games is disrupted by the insertion of a TV. The food traditions were disrupted by immigration and depositing the women into very different societal patterns of occupation. And there are potentially negative well-being consequences of this fracturing. And our final proposition, again, pitched much more at a um, community level. So community-based projects can engage people in promoting their own and communal health. The two examples that we've chosen, we'll start with Shaw and Dan in 1999, um, in, which was an article written in the early days of the Journal of Occupational Science um, and was picking up on the wisdom of an Aboriginal um, elder from the West Kimberley area in Australia. So part of the um, social and occupational disruption that had occurred over the centuries of colonisation was a real breakdown in traditional um, lifestyles and then a second breakdown of a pastoral lifestyle that um, members of this extended family had entered living on the um, sheep stations in the outback. Um, so as those opportunities were disbanded, the groups had moved to live on the edges of the town and entered a situation of real welfare dependency, um, which they described as a round paddock because there was no there was no place at which you could kind of come to the corner and get out of the paddock. So despairing of the um, welfare dependency, the levels of addiction and social breakdown that their circumstances were breeding, tribal elders were, were attempting to lead the community out through establishing culturally relevant projects that provided useful work and rebuilt a work ethic. But, but obviously those occupations really embedded in the culture and the traditions of those people. A different example, the Valley and Bel Air 2021, uh, a communal perspective of occupation. So this study was done in a senior centre in the US um, and looking at the staff and the participants in the senior centre. Um, this was a situation where the constitution of the neighbourhood was changing with more older Spanish-speaking immigrants coming into the area but still kind of on the periphery of what was going on in the senior centre. 
that balance of what was happening really shifted when a social work student uh, who was a fluent Spanish speaker had a placement in the centre. Um, and her presence there really stimulated a kind of cascade of responses to that. Um, and primarily amongst that was the rest of the staff just beginning to use some Spanish, looking at their program of activities and expanding out and starting to welcome those new immigrants into the spaces. So what both of those studies um, or how both of those studies support the proposition is that projects to promote change um, in who was, was present in those places, who participated, what they could do, really promoted inclusion and well-being for the community as a whole. Um, and I think that notable within both of those examples as well is that they weren't set up deliberately as projects, you know, from an agency and the occupational therapist arrives. They were projects that kind of happened naturally by people who were in those contexts, but certainly they were projects that shifted what was happening within the community towards outcomes of greater well-being. So if we look across those four propositions, what we can see is that um, or our six propositions, all of them are supported by evidence, but the first four are very well, well supported. It was very easy to find um, evidence and empirical evidence that supported those ideas about occupation that's meaningful, having a diverse array of occupations, having a balanced set of occupations. Um, and, and also the opposite, that lacking those things was really detrimental to people's health. There was much thinner evidence to support the propositions that societal patterns of occupation support or undermine health or that intergenerational patterns of occupation um, similarly can support or harm health. Um, and only a sprinkling of examples where there was evidence that had already been generated that community-based projects can promote health and well-being. Although, funnily enough, before I came online, I was listening to a BBC documentary talking about soccer and its use to promote health. Not sure that there were any occupational therapists in the picture, but um, definitely moving to engage people in into a valued um, social pattern of occupation and um, a lot of individual and heartfelt evidence that that really had turned their health status around. But to go back to where we started from, all of the propositions that we have put forward emanate from a weird perspective. So these were all um, studies that didn't necessarily take place in a weird um, context, but the research was really coming from those perspectives. So they were just taking as normal the, the kinds of viewpoint that people who are raised in Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic countries um, take as normal life. So to open our minds to whether propositions that come from that perspective are sufficient um, and to think about what kinds of propositions might arise if we were to look to evidence that's being generated from people who come from different perspectives. 
um, we looked at the, the very few examples um, within the Journal of Occupational Science of studies which were reporting um, non-weird perspectives. So this is us kind of moving out and dabbling, having a play in a sense. So definitely issuing the health warning to you know not take our interpretation of those studies as holding true. It's not our place to... Um, you know, make any specific declarations. But as we read those literatures to see, you know, are they just based on the same assumptions about the relationship between occupation and health? Or can we see some different ideas coming forward? Indeed, we can. Um, so looking at the work by Nunes et al, 2022, um, they were looking at traditional lifestyles of Indigenous people, in this case in South America, um, and what we could read into their stance on that relationship between health and occupation was that traditional lifestyles of Indigenous people preserve not just human welfare, but environmental balance. Looking at literature by Ramazé et al. in 2022 and um, Juman Saman 2017, um, which were studies that talked about reclaiming or maintaining Indigenous perspectives. Um, so in this case, traditional tattooing and olive growing. And how those occupations could be decolonising. Um, and again, they were taking a really broad view of health and the assumption that decolonising, reclaiming one's own worldview and traditional occupations could be health enhancing. A study by Smith, 2017, which looked at the um, Maori practice of kapahaka, which is a form of dance. Um, and Valence really looked at Maori spirituality and how it could inspire and energise people who engaged in that occupation through its life force of performance, um, bringing enlightenment, understanding um, where people engaged in those occupations in a really authentic way and um, with the mana and, um, and love that, that was encompassed within that, so kind of wholeheartedly entering into those occupations. So one of the important things to notice is the broad conceptualisation of health when we start to look at, at literature um, that has come from Indigenous authors um, and how it's much more likely to be about the welfare of a whole group and to lack that separation of human and environment um, and to see that resistance of um, the colonizers' worldview uh, is again very health promoting. Uh, so, if we look at Indigenous perspectives, from our stance, we can see some glimmers of some very different understandings about health and well being and how that relates to people's um, health and, and to what they're doing. Now, by right, those kind of claims need to be developed by Indigenous people themselves but um, and non-weird people. But perhaps when, when we start to open ourselves to those perspectives, we can start to see that the relationship between health and occupation can be perceived in much 
broader and more integrative terms than the way that we propose them in our propositions. Um, that propositions about that relationship can be supported by diverse forms of evidence, not just empirical data. Um, and that the view of health that's contained within them might be characterised as much more collectivist or resistive than the way that we framed it within the propositions that we proposed. Back to you, Emma. Okay. So what can we conclude? Um, we'll reassert our, our starting point that there are some well-supported propositions about the relationship between occupation and health, and that they will bring clarity to occupation-focused health promotion initiatives that are aiming to improve individuals' health and well-being. And we just need to complete the systematic reviews to, um, of the evidence to bring that to light. Um, of course, our initial set of propositions is illustrative, it's not exhaustive, and there were other propositions this initial work didn't capture, and one of such example being occupational adaptation. However, what we're signalling is important gaps in the, in the evidence, so primarily how occupation can promote health and well-being at that communal level. In addition, we hope that our work highlights the benefits of encompassing non-weird perspectives in ways we can't yet even anticipate, because the more we look at them, the more weird our understanding of occupation and health appears. So we'd like to um, conclude with a, a challenge to explore your own thinking. Um, what makes your worldview weird? Um, is it a tendency to decontextualize human health from the health of the environment, um, to ignore or sometimes reject the role of the greater life force, of a greater life force in our day-to-day -day patterns of occupation? Or is it processes we may knowingly or inadvertently practice and participate and perpetuate, such as colonization, apartheid, structural poverty, immigration, war? Um, so really over to you to think about what that means for you. So also on this just final quick... slide, we've yeah, we've got a little um what's that thing called, Emma? A Q code? A QR code. There you go. Um <laughs> if you click onto that, that will take you to a place where you can request a copy of our presentation. So uh, continuing in the practice that Liz Townsend and I uh, developed many years ago to make our work very publicly available. If you ask for a copy of the presentation, then right at the end, we've got some slides where we've filled in on the slides much more of the evidence that we've actually presented verbally today. So very happy to send that out. Um, but happy now also to open to questions. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to occupiedpodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favourite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.